Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Well, Ward, this is not the kind of podcast we want to be doing. It isn't. Uh, it is a sad day for Indiana University fans. It is a sad day for Indiana Pacer fans. It is a sad day for anyone who ever came into contact with this gentleman and a sad day for basketball fans everywhere because we learned just a few hours ago the passing of the legend George McGinnis. We had the great privilege and honor of speaking both with Big George and and with Slick Leonard, you know, who was his fellow legendary Hoosier and Pacer. And both of these gentlemen, and today with our our mourning of the loss of George, you you even have to think bigger than Indiana University, as hard as that is for us. But what both of these men meant to the game of basketball in the state of Indiana uh, over their lifetimes and careers. And it it's just so special that we did get to have these conversations. And, you know, in this one with, with George, where so many of us were not on the earth yet when he was in Bloomington. And to just get a peek inside to, uh, you know, his experience um, the growth he made, um, the impact he made in his couple of years in Bloomington, it, it's eternal. It will, it will never not be one of the great experiences and players to take the court for the Indiana Hoosiers. Uh, it's just so sad that um, it's all in the past tense now, both, both his career and his life. I remember just vividly my dad telling me about the great George McGinnis. And I remember it was about 20 years ago now that he started a phrase that he just has kept repeating for 20 years. And that was about 20 years or so ago is when a guy named LeBron James came onto the scene in basketball and was just lauded for his athletic ability, his prowess, the way he was built. He just looked different than everybody. And I remember just vividly my dad going, Eric, George McGinnis was LeBron before LeBron. He was a man among boys. And he would just, 
my dad would just get filled with joy and passion talking about what it was like to watch George McGinnis play this game that he loved and that we all love and means so much to so many people. But McGinnis, even in that just one year at IU, you know, for my dad, it was like any talk of the greatest players at Indiana, McGinnis comes up because he was just head and shoulders above what anybody else was doing. And look, his stats prove it. I mean, the single biggest scoring um, season in the history of Indiana in his first year at IU, almost 15 rebounds a game and almost 30 points a game. It's it's staggering. By the way, I, I know that, that we'll play the intro, but one of the stats that just gets me the most is he's fifth all-time at Indiana in 2010 games. <laughs> he played one season. So I just um, – but my dad – just talking about the impact that this man made on him as a younger guy um, just fills me with joy and pride thinking about him. And then if I could, you know, when we started this podcast and we started reaching out to these legends and still happens, I'm nervous. I, I am. I'm like, I don't have any shame, but I'm nervous in reaching out to them. And big George was like the most nerve wracking because Big George is his nickname, first of all. <laughs> My dad had been filling me with this like man among boys forever. He just lived larger than life in my head and in the in the annals of, of basketball history, especially Indiana basketball history. And I got his number and I wasn't sure, do I call him, do I text him? And I started texting him and I didn't get a response right away. And then I remember where I was. I was in the front yard of Mandy's house when a text came through from Big George. Hi, Eric. Nice to meet you. Call me at this number anytime. Mm. And I couldn't get it fast enough. And I called him. And we had this great conversation. He was so sweet and so open and so gentle and so warm. And enthused about doing this podcast and reliving that time at Indiana, because even though he played one year, he was there for two years, right? You know, because because freshmen weren't allowed to play. And so he lived in Blooming for, for two years. And, and obviously his career was at the end of one era and the beginning of uh, before the beginning of the Bob Knight era. But he was genuinely enthusiastic to talk about the Hoosiers and what Indiana meant to him. And you and I talked about at the time that like Indiana did not do a good job of connecting G Big George to fans and kind of, you know, owning a piece of Big George and his basketball legacy. He just they didn't do a good job with it, like period. I actually think Mike Woodson has done a much better job with it because Mike Woodson coming from Indianapolis, you know, the legend of George McGinnis meant something very real to Mike Woodson. They had a long relationship. And and there were pictures not all that long ago about Big George being in Bloomington with Coach, which was wonderful to see. So I give Coach Woody a lot of credit for that. But he was anxious and eager to reconnect that. And you and I were so happy when we got to talk to him. It was, it's just one of those all-time memories that, that you and I will, will have. And when I think about this podcast and the people that we've been able to talk to, and now the people that are no longer with us, like you brought up Slick and mm -hmm. Big George. It makes me um, obviously incredibly sad, but also humble and um, 
joyous isn't the word, but but really proud that we have this interview, this conversation that we were able to do with him and be able to share it again with our audience. Absolutely. It's a conversation we had between ourselves when the news broke that there are three people, three players uh, on the state of Indiana Mount Rushmore of basketball players. And it's Larry Bird, Oscar Robertson, and Big George. And besides Larry's brief stint in Bloomington, which we all know was was far too short, Big George is the only one of those three who uh, was and forever will be Indian, an Indiana Hoosier. And that should fill us all with pride. And the fact that he was able to accomplish what he was pre-coach night, post-coach uh, 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 Branch McCracken, you know, he, he sadly fell uh, in between um, two coaches that certainly could have brought a championship level team around him had they been there. Um, but like, how great for your father and, and those other contemporaries that even in between two legendary Hall of Fame coaches, you have one of the greatest basketball players of all time, not just at the college level, but then went and did just spectacular things at the ABA and was such a big part of revolutionizing the game of basketball into really entertainment, just mm -hmm. something that people came out, a whole city came out, a whole state got in support of. And, and really, you know, if you're enjoying Tyrese Halliburton playing right now, which you all should be, you have you have Big George. You have Slick to thank for that. And then, of course, George went on to play in the NBA and be spectacular there as well, even though it was a little bit later in his career. And, you know, we we have become a more contemporary podcast just the natural evolution of the show as we've gotten to talk to so many of these guys already. Um, but I, I don't for one second take for granted that we've been able to have these conversations and, you know, long after this podcast is over, um, these will remain somewhere in the ether for, for generations to come who really want to appreciate and understand why Indiana basketball is special. They can listen to Big George talk about it for a while and, and, and know and understand from, from the guy. Uh, my heart also goes out to Steve Downing. You know, Steve and Big George are inextricably linked. They played together. They're, they were friends forever. From high um, school, we should mention, from, obviously, yeah. we talk about it later. Absolutely. They came to Indiana together from high school and, and decided to play for, for the Hoosiers and have stayed in touch all these years and extremely close. And we were lucky enough to have Steve on the show as well. So my heart goes out to him because I know what Big George meant to him. And and again, I just we know what basketball means to people in Indiana. We know what Big George meant to people in Indiana. And uh, it's a sad day uh, for everybody. So the only, uh, appropriate tribute that we thought we could make is sharing that conversation that we had several years ago again with the audience. So hope you enjoy a little walk down memory lane with the term is overused, but a true, in this case, it's appropriate, a true legend. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Wow. Wow. Uh, this is as exciting as it gets 
for somebody who is a fan of Indiana basketball, not just at the college level, but at all levels. Eric, please let the people know what this gentleman has accomplished in his amazing basketball career. Buckle in, everybody. Here we go. We are talking to a gentleman who was awarded Mr. Basketball in the state of Indiana in 1969 after winning a state championship. After that, he was also awarded Mr. Basketball in the entire country in 1969. He was first team all Big Ten, his one season at Indiana University, All-American in 1971. He has the highest scoring average in a season all time at Indiana at 29.9 points per game. We are going to ask him later on if he's upset that he didn't hit that 30.0, but we'll get to that later. He has the fourth best rebounding season average of all time at 14.7 rebounds. He has, this stat just blows me away. He is fifth all time at Indiana University in in 20.10 rebound games. Fifth all time. He did it in one season. (laughs) He is tied for number one all-time in a career at Indiana with 30.10 rebound games. Number one, one season. He is a three-time ABA All-Star. He is a three-time NBA All-Star. He is a two-time ABA champion. He is All-NBA First Team 1976. He is an NBA Hall of Famer inducted in 2017, one of only four Indiana Hoosier players to have that honor. He was the ABA Playoffs MVP in 1975. He is simply put, one of the greatest players to ever play the game of basketball. We are honored and privileged to speak to Big George McGinnis. Welcome, George. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. So when you hear all of those accomplishments, when you just hear all those listed for you, which I'm sure you've heard at various times in your life, is there one that sticks out to you that that you are just most proud of or one that just brings a real smile to your face? Well, yeah, I, I think for me, it, it's got to be the Indiana State High School Basketball Championship. You know, kids grow up here in our state um, playing basketball at a very early age where it's almost ingrained in us. And um, watching the state championship uh, games as a young boy with my dad, um always inspired me to you know want to play the game and I would always think uh you know playing out in the backyard you know me playing in a state championship game and seeing the guys get that little gold ring that they got that that was one of the most satisfying the most satisfying feeling I think I've ever had in the game well let's let's get into that a little bit more I did go back and watch your hall of fame induction speech and you said there were two things that occurred in 1956 as a six-year-old boy that led you to love the game of basketball and embrace it. Can you, can you tell us about those? Yeah. Yeah. It was the first time that I actually, I, you know, I got to read about Oscar Robinson all the time in the newspapers the local newspapers, but never saw him. Uh, didn't live too far away from him at the time. Um, but, Seeing him win uh, in 1956, that was uh, that was one of the things was that was so inspiring. Not only for me, I think, for but for every kid in that neighborhood that I lived in. And so it was the next day um, on a Sunday. We were all out in the backyard shooting hoops, you know, and uh, that that was a start for me. I was six years old, and wow. and you were able to watch him play because your family 
had a television set now, right? Yeah, we had an old raggedy television set where we had a, you know, we had to use a clothes hanger for an antenna, and you know, it kept going in and out. And my dad kept saying, "Keep changing." I, I, I missed part of the game just from changing the antenna around for the entire game. But it was a, it was a really, really good game, and it was so much fun to watch, and uh, it, it really left a mark on me, and as well as a lot of other kids in my neighborhood. When uh, when did you start playing basketball at the famous Meadowood Park? I started playing there in high school. I was about 15 years old. And what were those games like? Oh, they were brutal. Brutal. You you had one chance. If you if you won, you stayed out there. If you didn't, you might not play for another four or five games. So it was uh, it was incredible. It brought uh, guys from all over Central Indianapolis who played on, you know, on Saturday afternoons. And it was, it was really competitive, a lot of fun, um, end up making a lot of friends, but boy, that was, uh, that was really a fun time. One of the most competitive, um, I would say summer basketball that you could find was Meadowwood Park back in those days. Now, when did the the fates allow you and Steve Downing to find each other as friends and teammates? Was it was it prior to high school, or was it once you guys got to school? Right in the eighth grade, you know, I, I met Steve and then uh, knew him slightly. We went to different we went to different middle schools, um, but we played Steve's school uh, during the regular season. Um, that year and then when he but he was just a little guy he was about five nine at that point hmm. in eighth grade and he was five ten in washington when he was a senior i mean uh, was a freshman wow and i was and i was six foot almost six five so he um, he grew almost a foot in high school as a senior he was six foot nine so he was a late bloomer, but he uh, kept improving. And every time he come back to school the next year, he just he'd be a totally different person. I think, oh my God, I don't even know this guy. How many inches did he grow? And uh, and and but we become fast friends right away. We played all the time together, and uh, we I still talk to him at least once or twice a week to this day. When did you know, George, that basketball was not just going to be something that you enjoyed playing but something that could help get you you know to the next level get you a a scholarship in college and and perhaps play professionally when did that start to enter into your consciousness i i think it was about my junior year my uh, my my coach my high school coach came to me and told me that um that he had received a couple of letters from colleges about a possible scholarship opportunity for me to play and that's when it really, really hit. You know, I thought, you know, I've heard coaches told me when I was a sophomore, you know, you might be good enough to, you know, play in Division One college basketball. You just got to keep working hard. And then I started getting the letters, and that kind of certified things for me, and uh, that, that was inspiring, you know. And then I end up with about uh, three or 400 letters in all because part of them were for football and part of them were for basketball, so – when you were growing up, obviously Oscar Robertson was somebody that you looked up to. Uh, right. As far as Indiana University basketball players at the time, when you were a kid, the Van Arsdales were big players at Indiana University. Did they mean anything to you growing up? Oh, absolutely. The Van Arsdales, Rick Mount, 
You know, I remember the Van Arsdales, I think it was in 63 that they played in the high school state championship game. And I remember them foul. I remember one of them fouling out and they end up losing the game. But the, um, but the vision that I got locked in my mind was the crying, how disappointed they were that they had gotten beat. And um, I felt so bad for them. And years later, I got the opportunity to not only, only meet them, but play against them. And I, I can tell you, I don't think I've ever met two finer guys than the Van Arsdale twins. They, they are just unbelievable. Now, you had mentioned um, high school coach getting scholarship offers. You actually had two great high school basketball coaches. Can you talk about Jerry Oliver and Bill Green and what made them so outstanding and how they influenced your approach to the game? Well, Jerry, Jerry Oliver uh, was whom I, it was the first uh, I played for at Washington. Uh, he brought me on to the varsity team as a freshman, gave me an opportunity and you know, he kept encouraging me, but he was a, he was strong on fundamentals and dribbling with both hands and, you know, doing all kinds of different drills. Uh, a lot of working on just, you know, fundamental basketball and a really, really good coach. And uh, he not only ended up going to, after my junior year, he left for IU and became an assistant coach down there. And I eventually ended up going there. And then after leaving IU, he became an assistant coach with the Pacers where I was. So he was a coach for me at every level. It, I don't think it was a coincidence that Jerry Oliver ended no. up at Indiana University. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I put in a couple of good words for him for sure. There, but... Uh, and then Bill Green, who ended up taking over for Jerry after uh, he left our junior year. Uh, he came in our senior year, and he's probably the most legendary, celebrated high school coach in Indiana basketball, basketball history. He won six state championships. He, the first one was, was with Washington, my high school. And uh, he was just uh, he was a, a guy who knew how to inspire. He, he knew how to get the best out of you by putting things in front of you. You know, one of the great things, and I can tell you, this is how bad things were for us in terms of not having money or access to anything. He told us one practice before the season started. He goes, yeah, I know you guys. We, we used to go to White Castle all the time. Every time we got a, a couple of bucks. White Castle is a is a little slow. They're called sliders here. I don't know if you, you guys probably oh, know. Oh, yeah, we know them well. We know them well. <laughs> well, well, Bill Green um, – after the last practice before the season started, he goes, I know you guys are always going to White Castle. So he says, I'm going to make you a deal. He says, if you, for every game you win, we'll go to White Castle, and each one of you can have eight to ten White Castles apiece. And <laughs> we went we went 31-0. and 0. <laughs> <laughs> But he was he was really an inspiring coach. He had a he had a legendary matchup zone defense that he we played and he went around and taught that to different colleges, Notre Dame, IU and different other places. And then he went on to Marion uh, High School in Marion, Indiana, and ended up winning five more championships there. So he was a great, great guy. He, he now has passed, but uh, he left a very big mark on the high school game here in Indiana. Uh, we have to ask. George, when was the last time you had a White Castle slider? Uh, about a month ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't eat as many now, but every now and then 
get a craving and you say, oh, man, come on, I'll get a, you know, give me four or five of them and just boom. Ward and I were uh, back in Indiana in February. Brings for back a, a lot of good memories. Yes. Ward and I were back in Indiana in February and uh, we, we took different flights to get in and Ward got in very late, like around midnight. And he called me. I was waiting for him at the hotel. And he said, I just got to make one stop before I get to the hotel. Right. Stop by White Castle and brought me some burgers, too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Everybody here knows White Castle. Man. That's they right. Were, they were a legendary place. Yeah. Well, can we get in a little bit to that magical senior season for you and Steve and Wayne Pack and and Bill Green and your other teammates? First of all, just paint a picture for us what it was like a, a gym, your gym, let's say your gym at Washington, Friday night, a rival team comes to town, right. a, a good team, or comes across town, I should say. What was that atmosphere like? What was the the passion, the excitement when it's still single-class yeah. basketball at the high school level? It, it was electric. Um, you know, um, everyone went to high school basketball games back then and every high school gym was packed on friday and saturday night and everybody wore their team colors and our team colors were purple and white so everybody would come on come in the gym with a white sweater or a purple sweater bill green wore a lot of purple sweaters as a coach so you know it was it was so inspiring because you know you got the cheerleaders you got the fans it's loud um there, you know, we've got the largest high school gyms uh, in the country here in Indiana. I think there's eight of them. And um, we didn't have a big gym. We played a lot of our home games at Butler and Indiana Central College here um, just because we didn't have enough room wow. for the So um, it, was, it was really inspiring. Just coming out to warm up, you know, you were just geeked up, you know. Mm -hmm. in, in high school, George, who was the team that you liked to play against the most and beat? Well, in Indianapolis, there were several teams, you know. It was very, very competitive. You had Attics, where Oscar Robinson had went to school. You had uh, Tech High mm -hmm. School, who ended up going to a state finals during that time. A lot of guys who ended up playing in the NBA during that era, too. And uh, so there was four or five schools that were great competitors. I would say our biggest competitor was uh, at, during the time I was in high school was Short Ridge High School. They seemed to always give us the toughest time. We had the toughest time beating them. They beat us in our junior year uh, by really just holding the basketball, slowing the basketball down, and end up. Um, uh, it was a huge disappointment because we were favored to win that year as well. Uh, but they played an excellent ball game and beat us in a very tight, low-scoring game. What did you learn from that loss that you took into the next year and, and helped shape you going forward as a competitor? Well, I think, you know, we went in the locker room. I think it was a talk that we got from our coach, Jerry, uh, who told us, you know, never, you're, you're never too good to be beaten. And... Um, you know, we had played this team a couple of times during the regular season and had beat them thoroughly. And uh, they came out and, um, you know, won that, that third game in, in, the, in, the, in the regionals. So it was, you know, always, you know, you always got to be prepared. You know, every game is important. It's just like the NCAA tournament. You know, there's, there's no room for a bad game. You've got to be ready to play every single game. And that's the mindset we had <clears throat> coming into my senior year. Well, Excuse your me. senior year, 
you go undefeated at 31 and 0 and like you said that state championship still sticks out to you as the thing you that that you are most proud of the other right. thing that was happening your senior year i don't i'm not sure i i think you probably are aware of this but oscar robertson was the all-time leading scorer in the state of indiana high school basketball until right. you broke his record your senior year do you remember right. that i mean it is such a storied record to this day damon bailey is now the all-time leading scorer and has been, you know, for over 20 years or, yeah, about 20 years now, right? Uh, 30. 30 years, 30 years. What was that like for you to to overtake your hero uh, in that record? Well, it was unbelievable because, um, you know, I, I always held him to the highest of esteem. He was, he was kind of our hero. He grew up in our community. He was from my city. And, you know, I get to see him every other, every few weeks or so on national television when they did broadcast the NBA game in those days, played for the Cincinnati Royals. But it was incredible. I got the ball, and it's over at uh, my mom's house that uh, was presented to me at, after the game. And uh, it's one of my most prized possessions. Oh, that's incredible. Well, and you really sealed the deal there um, uh, with your point total by recording 148 points in the last four games of that undefeated championship season to go on to win Mr. Basketball. What did it mean to you? You know, your parents moved up from from Alabama in search of a better life for not only themselves, but of course, the next generation. What did that mean to to not only win that, but then go on to represent the state as an Indiana All-Star? Well, that was that was another high point in my high school career. Like I said, it was it meant everything to me. It, it meant meant that you know, being Mr. Basketball, you represented not only Indiana but your city, your state, your high school, your fans, your parents. It, it was all rolled into uh, to one for me. So it was a great honor. Now, there's a story that I heard in these these classic Indiana-Kentucky all-star games that happened after the season that right. that I have heard told to me now from several people that, that were around then. But you play Kentucky at in, in Indiana, and then you play them once in Kentucky. After the yeah. Indiana game, I heard there was some trash talking going on from the Kentucky players about you specifically. Do you remember this story? Yeah, I do. Uh-huh. Please tell us. Well, uh, there was a big rugged guy named Joe Voskiel. He was about six foot eight, uh, probably about two twenty. That's pretty good size for a high school kid, especially back in those days. And uh, he guarded me, and you know he tried to be very physical. I had a, I thought I had an okay game. I think in the first game I had twenty one points or something like that, ten or twelve rebounds. We won the game, uh, but. Then after the game, you know, he had made the comments as well. I've heard all this stuff about McGinnis. He doesn't seem to be that great to me. (laughs) I've played pickup games with Oscar Robinson because he lived in that tri-state area of Cincinnati and Kentucky and all that. And he had said he had played some pickup games with Oscar. And there's there's nothing I can see that compares him to anybody that's really that good. So. So then uh, the second game, we played the first game we played in Indianapolis at Butler University. And uh, second game we played at the University of Louisville. I mean, at Louisville's Freedom Hall down there. And um, so uh, 
you know, it was ironic. That was the last game my dad saw me play. My dad was killed in a construction accident about three weeks after that uh, Kentucky All-Star, the last Kentucky All-Star game. And uh, I had 53 points and 31 rebounds. <laughs> did you say anything to him afterwards, or did you uh, look at no, him? Not, not really, but he came over and said something to me. He hugged me and says, oh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, this is what he says. I, he says, I, I made a big mistake. I says, no problem. Wow. Now, And, you know, the kid has called me kid has several times over the years. He says, hey, hey George, this is Joe. You remember me? I says, I'll never forget you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> You did lose your father so so shortly yeah. after that. How right. did that loss uh, affect you not only as a young man, but di- did you change the trajectory of the way you approached the game of basketball? Well, you know, I my dad was a he was a real solid guy, man's man. You know, um, my mom was a great woman and he wanted her to stay home and take care of the kids, which is what she'd done. He worked two jobs and, uh, he worked in a factory at night and he worked construction during the day. Well, he was working at a company called Eli Lilly, which is a very famous drug company as we all know. And, uh, he was working on a project over there and fell off of a building off of a scaffold and killed himself. Mm-hmm. And he was killed from the accident. But, um, it just, um, put, uh, a whole new perspective on, I had never been around death. And it was my first time being associated with, it. I never had any of my friends or friend family that died. I, I went to funerals for grandparents and things of that nature, but nothing so close. And my dad was only 42 years old, by the way. Mm-hmm. So um, it was uh, it was uh, a thought that how can I how can I help my mom out? What can I do to make life better for her? So I did work in the summers, and then she started working, and um, you know we made it through. And uh, but it was tough. It was really tough. Do you remember around that time when that happened or in the wake of that, thinking to yourself, I have a chance to play professional basketball and and make some decent money. I've got to get there as quickly as I possibly can. Um, Yeah, especially after my sophomore year, I I knew that I I was going to be leaving. Yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, that was the best way and the quickest way to make some money where I could make a serious impact on my mom's life. Yeah. And not to jump ahead, but just a button on that. And and what did you do with your uh, initial signing bonus when you went professional? Uh, I bought my mom a house, which mm-hmm. she still lived in. And she just died about uh, nine months ago. And uh, I uh, she lived in that house for over 50 years. I mean, about 40, 40-something years. And um, so she was very, very happy. And uh, I was just so happy that I was able to... Um, help her because she had done her and my dad had done so much for me it was just a way to say thank you and how much i loved her and appreciated everything for being such a good mother to me and my sister we 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 talk a lot to to former players and we've talked to many coaches sons or uh kids that grew up with their dad kind of pushing them into basketball or teaching them the game and i think one of the most overlooked kind of support systems that exists here is how important the moms are in the oh, shaping yeah. of, of basketball players and any athlete really. Yeah. And clearly really, your mom was a strong woman that, that helped you get to where you got. 
Yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, you know, you go out throughout all the history of the NBA or even professional sports in particular, and especially the African-American players, one of the first things they do with their money is buy their mom a home. Mm-hmm. And um, it's almost a tradition now. And uh, so it was It was really um, – it really made me feel good, and, and uh, my mom ended up having a, a really nice, comfortable life, and she lived to be 92 years old. Wow. Now, you you did have to make a stop uh, on the collegiate tour before you went to the professional ranks. Can you take us through the decision-making process to, to go to Indiana University along with Steve? Well, you know, after Jerry Oliver left, or my coach at Washington for the first three years there, and he took the job at Indiana, me and Steve had pretty much decided, myself and Steve Downing, had pretty much decided we wanted to go to the same school. And we had talked the previous summer, and we talked about staying close to home. And um, we wanted to, to you know, we, we looked at a couple different schools, but IU was always our number one choice, so... Going into our senior year, we pretty much knew we were going to, to IU together. You were recruited by Adolph Rupp at uh, Kentucky, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. And at that time in your basketball life, you know, Ward and I and uh, and our kids obviously hate Kentucky. We have to hate Kentucky, just part of oh, who we are. Yeah. Did you have Absolutely. any? Did you have any feeling for Kentucky or the Purdue rivalry as you made your decision to go to Indiana in high school? Well, yeah, I knew about the rivalry, but it wasn't it wasn't ingrained in my head like seasoned veterans who had uh, already been to college and experienced the IU Kentucky. You know, all I knew was about was a high school rivalry. I wasn't so ingrained in the in the college level rivalry. I did know that IU and Purdue uh, had a big rivalry because they were interstate schools. But uh, Kentucky, I knew that there was a rivalry, but it never. It, it never hit me like like that, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I was aware of it, but it didn't play a big role. So just to set the stage here, this is a time in college basketball where freshmen were not eligible to play the varsity basketball. Right. You get to campus, you and Steve Downing. Indiana basketball right. was in a little bit, not a little bit, in a big slump. Uh, yes. It had been many years since the Branch McCracken glory years. The Van Arsdales, who had some decent teams, are gone. And Indiana yeah. is really a bottom dweller in the Big Ten. Uh, right. The joke that I have heard told to me many times is that the best team on campus your freshman year did not play uh, collegiate basketball. And uh, yeah. and And what was it like for you that freshman year, knowing that you could help, but you weren't allowed to? Yeah, it was it was really tough, confusing, um, and then um, you know you couldn't dunk a basketball back then either. All you know? right. So that that whole process of all the new rules that had come into the game uh, seemed like it just short sighted us being big guys and everything. Um, it, it hurt us, and it was because of a guy named Kareem Abdul Jabbar. He was so dominant that they changed the rules because of him. So, um, you know, we played intramural ball back in those days, and we got a little freshman team, and, you know, we played against some different kids from around uh, the campus. But we did get to play the varsity team one one, uh, one time, and we beat them pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> was it, was it uh, something where y- you were frustrated, but 
it somehow was an opportunity to really hone your game? Were you able to even be around any of the coaches to help develop, or was it all on you while you were waiting to come into the program? It, it, it was pretty much you were on your own. You know, we had, uh, you know, I, I, I think I went to, um, I went to all the games, but uh, that was it. Never got, I never went to any of the practices. Um, we, we just played around the campus. So, and then every now and then when the gym was open, they would let us sneak in there and shoot. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of restrictions on freshmen back in those days. So it was pretty frustrating where you had been playing ever since, you know, seven, eight years old. And all of a sudden you take got to take a year off. How, how much fun was it just to be on that beautiful campus with with all those uh, uh, wonderful, fun loving people around you? Oh, man, it was it was the greatest two years of my life. I don't think uh, that I could ever ask for anything else uh, that I had more fun and enjoyed so much. It's an incredibly beautiful campus of all the limestone buildings and um, going up and down the hills and walking to class and meeting different people from all over the state and all over the country as well. And um, it was it was a great experience for me. So your freshman year ends, there is a buzz on campus, and I can speak uh, once removed about this because my father was there at the time, and he right. told, and he has told me, along with many other people like great IU historian Bill Murphy, who I believe you know as well, that there was an excite, there was an excitement because of of you and and Steve Downing, but there was a real thought that this could really be the class that gets Indiana back. Clearly, Lou Watson thought the same thing. And now your sophomore year starts. What do you remember about just finally, after a year off, being able to play in those first couple games? Well, it was it was it was incredible. We played in the old Phil House back in those days, you know, and uh, they had, they were just starting to build Assembly Hall mm-hmm. uh, my freshman year, and um, so. It was it was exciting. It was um, you know you got that place packed and you know you, all the red and white uh, the IU song and the theme song of the college. It was it was really really exciting. It was now boy I'm back in my element again. You know this is where I, this is why I came here. You know. Well, the third game of the year, you are welcomed into that rivalry we touched on when number five Kentucky comes to town. Right. And again, you are coming out of several years of, of really poor performance from the Indiana basketball team, but you guys are giving them all they can handle. The game is tied. Right. It is. It feels like this is kind of the coming out party for this new era of Indiana basketball. You take them to the end of the game. It's a tie game with just seconds left. Do you remember right. what happens at the end of regulation? Uh, I, I, I have never, ever been able to get this out of my mind. Yeah, we... Um... We uh, we got a rebound and uh, the score was tied and um, John Ritter was passed the ball and there was a few seconds left on the clock and I instinctively I thought I saw Luke signal for a timeout and he didn't and I called timeout and he just slung up a seventy footer and it was all net. And boy, my heart sunk. So 
we end up losing the game, and I it took me a long time to get over that. A long time, but yeah, it's 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 one of the great stories that's told about IU basketball to this day. And and just to to make sure everybody gets it, so he flings it, but at the same time, on another part of the court, you thought the coach was asking for a timeout, so you called a timeout, yeah. basically simultaneously. Yes. And then, I mean, yes. and then your stomach just has to drop when you see that ball go through the hoop. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as I walk to the bench, now the whole coaching staff and all the teammates are looking at me like, <laughs> what, do, what do you do? And then I, it, finally, it finally hit me and Lewis says, I didn't call timeout. And uh, I just thought, he says, we don't want him to set up. He says, Why'd you do that? I says, I thought I saw you call a timeout, but it was one of the great disappointments, especially early in my career, third game, you had that happen. I felt like I cost my team the game, you know. Well, you scored 38 points and 20 rebounds in that game and clearly are the reason that the team won many games, including the next game against number seven, Notre Dame, where you go to Notre Dame and you win that game, which sets off a, a win streak of three in a row. So right. things do seem to be turning around. The Big Ten season starts. Northwestern was your first Big Ten game. You go off for right. 38 points and 23 rebounds. I mean, just saying these numbers, George, for us, it just sounds like we're talking about a video game here. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, you had to be excited here that like things were really turning around for Indiana. Yes. Oh, yeah. We were on the upswing, and you know there was a lot of interest. You know, a lot of people were interested in Indiana basketball again. Uh, the, 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 we were filling up the arena, and um, a lot of excitement. Yeah. So everyone felt good at that time. So now you're starting to to travel some, and and from what I understand, there you know wasn't a lot of that in your high school career. What's it like going to you know uh, the other Big Ten schools, Minnesota, Ohio State? You know, this oh, is this is going to be your life for a long time to come. What was it like to be a traveling basketball stud? It was it was an, it was incredible. Uh, you know, we had a little we had a prop plane that Indiana had at the time that we flew the games, uh, uh, and uh, to see the different campuses. And it was always in the winter time, like Michigan. It was the coldest place I, I think I was at in the whole time. What, Wisconsin, I thought, was one of the most beautiful campuses uh, I'd ever been to or seen in Big Ten. And uh, so we got to experience a lot of uh, Michigan State was uh, was was good. And um, it, it was just a great experience being able to try. Ohio State was incredible. That was an incredible school. So, yeah, it was it was great. Not only now, we're not playing just in Indiana. We're playing, you know, all across the Midwest uh, and parts of the United States, you know. And what does that traveling do for a team to, to bond you guys and bring you closer together? Well, it's a time for, you know, you know, you can sit and strategize, strategize about the, the team you're going to play. You can just have fun talking on the plane. Uh, most guys are, you know, got uh, listening to it, you know, something on uh, on their little radio or something like that. So, coaches giving out uh, stuff that we can look at about the other team. It's a great bonding time. So the uh, season goes on for a while. You take uh, back then. There was a bit of a semester break. Uh, for finals. You come back for one kind of tune-up game before getting back into the Big Ten season. That tune-up game ends up being a memorable one because you score your 
Indiana and career high in college. You go off for 45 points and 20 rebounds against Northern Illinois. Right. Uh, and then you play Purdue in a, 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 a tough game where you lose, but that sets off a win streak where you win six in a row. And, right. and you really set yourself up for to to really have a chance at winning the conference. And back right. then, you had to win the conference to get to the NCAA tournament. Right. So it feels, heading into your last four games, I believe you're a game out of the Big Ten lead. And then right. things really start to falter. And IU loses three of four. But the other interesting thing that's happening that I'd love your perspective on is there really becomes this anti-Lou Watson sentiment from the fan base. It becomes a fairly toxic time for Lou. Yeah. Right. And and then there is this classic story of after the after you guys actually beat Iowa in your one win of the last four games, several players from the team sit down with Dr. John Brown, a professor at IU, to really right. go to him and say, things aren't working with Lou. What do you remember about that time and what was happening on the team? Well, you know, Lou had recruited a lot of uh, all-star type players. Some of them um, didn't get to play as much as they thought they wanted to. And uh, there was a group that just kind of turned on him. Um, Lou, I, Lou wasn't one of the all-time great coaches that we've ever seen, but he was a really good, good guy. He, he knew the game very, very well. You know, he, he played for, um, you know, the old coach there at IU. Um, Branch Bracken, yeah. And uh, he loved Branch, and so he, he brought a lot of the Branch philosophy uh, with him uh, during his time at IU. I, I, I truly enjoyed playing for him. Uh, but there were several guys who, you know, did not like him. And during that period, there was a lot of protesting you know, that was the, remember the Olympics uh, with uh, the um, Tommy, uh, what's his name? The, the, you know, that's the classic poster. Oh, that, sure, like, the track star. Yeah. Yes, and then uh, during that same year, our, our high, the Indiana football team had a problem. And they saw all the black players on that team protested about some issues and problems that they were having. And this, I don't know if this was a carryover with that or what, but it was something I didn't agree with. I didn't, I, you know, because I was playing, obviously. But right. there was a lot of guys felt like, you know, Lou just wasn't getting the job done. And um, that also played a big role in me saying, okay, I don't need any more of this. I'll just turn pro. Right. Well, to reflect on this season, which one could be argued was the the single greatest individual season that ever occurred at Indiana University. Did you did you just feel in in dominating opponents that way that it was something where the 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 professional ranks you know were obviously a given that you were going to go there but did you did you already understand at that level how well you could do at the next or was there still a little anxiety about how well you would do going against grown men getting paid for the game well at that point i, I pretty well knew that i had the ability to play at that level i don't know if i ever thought i had the ability to be at the same level I was in high school and college, because now, you know, every level, the competition gets better 
and there's guys not only as good as you but better than you as you move up so um i did you know being here in indianapolis i got to meet several of the pacers and uh my senior year in high school several of them came um came to the game to my high school game several of them and it's uh, Freddie Lewis, who was one of the all-time great uh, guards in the ABA. He says, man, you could play for our team right now. You could help us right now. <laughs> yeah. that, that started putting thoughts in my head, you know what I mean? So um, I knew I could contribute, but I didn't know how effective. I knew I could do something, but I didn't know how effective I could be. So just to put a button on your Indiana career, and, and something that I think we've mentioned before on this podcast, but it doesn't get enough um, attention because of the way it ended with with Lou. No one says a bad word about Lou. They may not have liked playing for him, but everybody says what you said. He was a classy guy. One of the all-time great guys. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's okay. I was just going to say the way he left. So all of this pressure comes to him. He actually steps aside. Jerry Oliver right. coaches the last game of the season. But the right. most amazing thing about Lou Watson is, of course, Bob Knight is then brought in. Lou right. Watson remains on staff of the athletic department. And he and Coach Knight actually become very friendly. Coach Watson, right. despite being kind of moved off the team against his own wishes, loves Indiana so much that does whatever he can to help smooth the transition to the next coach. I think that just speaks to the class of this man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of guy he was. And I think he ended up working for another 30 to 35 years for the university. Yes. Uh, different capacities so you know i always see him at golf outings or you know different functions for the school that i that i would attend but uh, yeah he he was uh, he was an iu guy he bled blue and uh, he, he bled uh, red and white let me tell you yeah that's great so destiny calls and and it's time to pursue your professional dreams can you talk us through how you found yourself going back home to play for your hometown indiana pacers well, again, you know, I'm in a unique position. Um, back in those days, an ABA team, um, if there was a guy uh, in your area, uh, you had you could you could you could go and get him. You got a right, kind of a right of first refusal, territorial the, rights, right? Right, exactly. But in the NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers had drafted me once I announced that I was coming out of school. So in those days, they held your rights for a lifetime. Meaning that if you were going to play for a team, it had to, it was only going to be Philadelphia in the NBA. So, um, and then um, you know, I I got to talk with several of the players from from the Pacers. They had just come off a championship season, their first one. There was a buzz in Indianapolis about what they've accomplished, and um, so I uh, I met with uh, with the coach and the general manager. And uh, they expressed an interest in having me, and and that 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 solidified everything in terms of making my decision. Uh, it's really interesting here because obviously you go to the ABA, you go to the Pacers, and you win back to back championships. You right. you you are playing at just an incredible level. Um, you actually your last year with the Pacers. You also your first stint with the Pacers. You get to the finals. But what I really want to focus on is, you know, my dad. From the time I remember being a, a conscious human being, would tell right. me about the great Big George McGinnis, 
And when I got really excited as a basketball fan to watch Michael Jordan play, but then when LeBron came on the scene and I got real excited about LeBron, my dad would say, let me tell you something. There was a LeBron before LeBron. His name was George (laughs) McGinnis. He was a man amongst boys. And we've heard several people, including Steve Downing, uh, tell us about how great you were on the court and the stats back that up. But there's another LeBron comparison that's really interesting to me, which is LeBron really is looked at as the poster child for taking on uh, the power of the player and really shifting the the balance of power in the NBA from owners and one-sided contracts to players really taking ownership of where they want to play, mobility amongst teams. You really were 30 years ahead of your game here, maybe 40 years ahead of, of, ahead of your time, when right. you sued the NBA and its 18 teams because of this lifetime rights that the Sixers claimed on you. Is that correct? Right. Correct. So can right. you just walk us through that, George, on what the thinking was back then and what were you well, hoping to accomplish? Well, certainly I thought it was totally unfair that uh, someone could draft you and then just hold your rights uh, for your entire lifetime of, uh, you know, whatever, you know, if, let's say if, if I'm 40 years old and I want to join a team in the NBA just to, you know, be a, a, a two-minute player, then I have to play with a certain team. It just, it just seemed like it wasn't fair. And uh, so uh, we got together, uh, my agent and a few attorneys, and, and uh, I ended up signing with the Knicks uh, after I left Indiana. I didn't sign with the Philadelphia 76ers. And uh, I knew I didn't, you know, we didn't make the kind of money uh, that, you know, players make today. And, and I didn't have enough money to, 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 to defend this case. So the New York Knicks indemnified me. Hmm. And uh, they, they're the ones who put up the money to fight that case. And they end up losing. Hmm. Yeah, they were no fools. They, they didn't want you going to Philly. <laughs> right, right, right. Let's go back to the Pacers because this is really an incredible run you have with them, both with what you're doing individually and what you guys are doing as a team. And that had actually started before you got there. Can you tell us what it was like to play for fellow Hoosier legend, a former IU national champ point guard, Slick Leonard? Oh, he was, he was great. And it's, it's another Branch McCracken disciple, you know, just like Luke Watson had some of the same philosophies. He was a really, really good playoff coach. In pressure games, he he knew how to change strategies, change offenses. He could flip-flop guys around. Uh, good, really good at that type of thing. And he got along very well with the players. Uh, guys would run through a wall for him. As I said, they had won a championship the, the year before I got there. So, you know, I I was just kind of walking softly um, when 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 I when I first came in there, and uh, had a pretty good rookie year. But yeah, it was it was a lot of fun because it was uh, you know coming from IU where you had all the turmoil with the guys my sophomore year to going to a team where you know everybody did everything together. You know, we rode horses. You know, we, we we went out shooting guns. We did this. We did that. It was all together. So I just loved that whole concept of uh, unity back then. And and he really became more to you than just a coach, didn't he? Oh yeah, like a second father. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I like that you said you really uh, 
you know, walked softly. Your walking softly turned into four years averaging 25.2 points and 12.9 rebounds a game your first four years in in the ABA. I'm just curious because we love hearing the stories. In the ABA those first four years, who was the best player you played against? Oh, without question, Julius Irving. But there were so many others. George Gerving, uh, Artis Gilmore, uh, Rick Berry, who came to our league. Uh, you know, there was uh, there was great players everywhere, you know. Um, but um, I, I think the guy who probably was the flagship guy of the league was Julius. And, um, you know, and it, it was it was very competitive. Uh, you, you played the same team over and over and over and over again. So you got to know him pretty well, you know. Sure. Uh, uh, but it was it was a lot of fun. And um, there was. There was something about the ABA that um, even though you played against these different teams, uh, there was a camaraderie that we had because, you know, we were the, we were kind of the stepchild to the NBA. And um, no one really ever thought that this league had the best players. And uh, in actuality, when we merged, we found that out the first couple of years of the All-Star game, most of those players were ABA guys. (laughs) Now, can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic of the ABA being the the stepbrothers? It really allowed for uh, a flourishment of of personality and, and individual style. You know, both in the way, you know, played and, and you know, three-point shot and all that kind of great stuff. Can you talk to us about what made the ABA so fun, not only to play for, but to watch as a fan? Well, yeah, you know, I, I watched some of the old football shows. Um, I was watching one the other night. The old Baltimore coach, there was a guy named Art Donovan. Oh, sure. Probably one of the all-time funniest ex-athletes ever. Now, he's no longer living, but boy... He, he was a great storyteller. And, uh, you know, our, our coach, Bobby Leonard, he, he told great stories. And uh, then, he, you know, he could, he could do certain things. Yeah, you know, we're, like we were playing in a game in, uh, against Denver. Larry Brown was a coach at that time. And um, this, this was a brutal series that we played. This was, my I think, my fourth year. Maybe my third year, my third year, because I won two championships my first two years, and then all of our veterans had left, and we were kind of in a rebuilding mode, but we ended up getting back to the finals that year. But we played Denver in the Western Conference final, and the seventh game was out there. And, um, you know, we it was a tight game throughout the entire game. and Maybe this was the sixth game, I'm sorry. But anyway, he calls a play for me to kind of they were going to get get the ball in, reverse the ball on the other side of the floor. I was going to get a pick underneath the bucket, come around, try and get the ball, take it up, either get fouled or try and score. Well, during the process of the play, the play broke down. We did get the ball in. We had a kid named Billy Keller who went to Purdue, played with Rick Mount, who was a tremendous shooter, and he played at the same high school I did and on the 1965 state championship team at Washington High School, which – uh, which was another inspiration for us in 69. But anyway, you know, with the seconds running down, you know, I say, Billy's open, Billy's open. I tell this this kid, Kevin Joyce, who's got the ball, he throws it to Billy Keller in the corner and he hits a three-point shot and we win that game. 
Mm-hmm. And on the way to the locker room, we're all jumping and screaming, hollering, you know, we beat them. Now we're going to the finals of the uh, ABA again, and we're going to play Kentucky. And we get to the locker room, and uh, all these reporters come in, and, you know, our coach Leonard is, 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 slid, is sitting there. And a guy, I heard a reporter ask him, he says, well, coach, how could you make a call like that in a tie ball game and a kid takes a three-point shot? You know, he says, that's just inconceivable to me. And Slip looks at the reporter and says, well, son, if you're going to be, in the, uh, if you're going to be a coach in this league, you've got to make decisions. And it was the biggest broken play. He never called a player. <laughs> uh, it was it was old type of characters. You know, we had all kind of characters. Marvin Barnes, and you know, we had the Afros and the and, and the Bell Bottoms, and you know, it was just an incredible league. A lot of characters, a lot of good guys, though. Now, uh, you did pretty well in that playoff run. You nearly averaged a triple-double at 32 points, 16 rebounds, 8 assists in those 18 games. Just one of the great playoff runs ever. But I do want to ask, when did your signature one-handed jump shot develop? Was that was that earlier, you know, high school, college, or when did that really become your go-to weapon? You know, like I said, my idol was Oscar, and he always put the ball back behind his head when he shot. And uh, I started doing that, and I had these big hands, and that's the way it developed. It was an awful shot. I, I don't think any of my coach ever liked me shooting. <laughs> but uh, it, it was just a, a bad habit that I picked up that I could not get out of. It was hard for me to put two hands on the basketball. Maybe you couldn't get out of that habit because the shot kept going in. Yeah, and the well, results yeah, it, was, it was working for me there, yeah, yeah. So we went over what happened then with the Knicks and then uh, kind of forcing the hand of the 76ers, which ended up being great leverage for you, uh, right. where you signed a six-year, no-cut, no-trade, no-option contract for $3.2 million with the Philadelphia 76ers after four years of playing with the Pacers. Now, I know I say six years, $3.2 million in 2020, and people think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But that was a huge contract when you signed it. It, it was a huge contract, one of the biggest in, in professional basketball. But uh, What it, did that it, feel like, George? I mean, you, oh you, you struggled financially, your family struggled, your father passed away, made things harder for your family and your mom. And now this is really, you know, we're talking in mid-70s, this is kind of generational wealth at this point. This yeah. sets up your whole family. Just tell us what that was like for you. Well, it was it was incredible. I I just thought, man, I I just can't. I'm just thinking about where I come from. You know, this whole process of, you know, high school, my little neighborhood, and then IU and the Pacers, and you know, I end up at this spot. Uh, I just felt like one of the most fortunate guys in the world. You know, and very blessed. Uh, I have to ask, we, we know uh, when with your signing bonus money that you originally got, you bought your mom a house, but now yes. you get this big contract, one of the biggest that's ever been signed. Did you buy right. yourself anything silly? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I bought a couple. I, I, like, I think I had three or four cars, but I never went crazy. I never went really crazy. Um, what was that first car, though, that you bought? Uh, it was an XKE Jaguar. Oh, nice. what year? Was it brand new? Yeah, it was a 1973 
Oh. And, you know, I wish I had that car today because it would have been a lot of money. No oh, kidding. My dad has a 67 uh, that he still has, oh. and it's his pride oh, and joy. Man. They're the most beautiful car. I mean, I love I love driving that car. So, uh, but I drove a Cadillac back in those days, and then I drove a truck. Uh, for most of my career, I drove a truck. So you get to Philly, and they were bottom dwellers before you got there. You, in your first season, you're all NBA first team. You turn them into instant contenders, but really right. to, to get to the next level, a guy shows up the next season who you seem to think pretty highly of this Dr. J fellow. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to now be his teammate as opposed to his opponent? Well, um, you know, we had uh, had a really good year. The first year I got there, made the playoffs and, um, you know, we brought the fan base back. Uh, there was a little bit of excitement, a little bit of excitement in the air in, in Philadelphia about the team. And then all of a sudden I, had the coach and general manager come to me and says, hey, we got a chance to sign Julius Irving. What, what do you think? I said, you go get him right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. And uh, so we end up uh, having some 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 really good, uh, good years, and uh, things kind of fell off. But, yeah, we went to the finals. It was, it was incredible. You know, the thing about Julius is – that, you know, I knew how good he was because we got to play against him uh, about six times during the year in the old ABA because there were so few teams that you played against a team a lot of times. So I knew how great he was. But to play with him for a full season, almost every game you saw something that he had, I had never seen before done on a basketball court. He was an amazing guy, amazing what was is there a play i'm sure there are many but one that sticks out that that you just caught yourself on the court being oh a, a, yeah they do a lot of alley-oop passes now you see these great alley-oop passes and i think it was duck collins threw him a pass it, it looked like it it was almost going out of bounds and he jumped up and grabbed it with one hand and almost brought it back around the backboard and dunked it. It was like, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. <laughs> and it was almost something like that every game. You would see something that he would do that would say, oh, my God, did you see that? <laughs> it's crazy. George, when you think back on your career in the NBA and ABA, is there a play that you made that sticks out as like, almost surprising yourself or just one that makes you incredibly happy one singular play um yeah i think so our second year um uh, we're playing in the aba finals against kentucky dan Issel and gilmore and um um they had a really really good team um trying to think of a little guard saying he was in the hall of fame he went in before i went in um Louis Dampier, I'm sorry, Okay, who was a really fine player. But anyway, we're in the fifth game down in Kentucky. And, uh, again, it's a really, really close ball game. And Slick calls a play for me. And um, I botched the play and lose the ball out of bounds. I mean, just had it in my hands. Here I go up for a little lay-in and just come out of my hands. So we call a timeout, or Kentucky calls a timeout, and um, 
So, you know, we're just going to play straight man-up defense and, you know, not foul and, you know, try and challenge a shot without fouling. So there was – I saw this play. They took it out the ball out at half court, and I saw this play develop, and I, I, it's just weird. I just could see it that all – everybody lined up at the half court line. The four guys broke – the Kentucky guys broke toward their bucket. And the guy I was guarding kind of – went in the backcourt to receive the ball. I could almost visualize this play before it happened. I said, I know they're not going to do this. And they did it, and I intercepted the ball and went in and scored, and we won the game. So nice. that was the biggest biggest play I've ever made. Uh, I'm curious, George, so after you signed this no six-year, no-cut, no-trade contract, you play a few years with Philadelphia, and then you are traded to the Nuggets. Did they have to come get your permission for that? Oh yeah, yeah. I had to give him permission. Yeah, and, yeah. And what was it about that? Were, were was your time just done in Philadelphia, and you were ready for yeah, a change? Yeah, uh, they were ready for a change. We had went to a finals. We had had a great year. Then we went to the finals. Then we got beaten the first or second round the next year, and they just wanted to bring in some new players. And it really was ended up being a good move for Philly because they ended up winning a championship with that team. Right. But they were surrounded with some really good players, Andrew, Tony, and. You know Moses Malone and people like that. We have more younger guys, Daryl Dawkins, and 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 who was really really good, but they were young. But uh, yeah, that was they came to me and I approved the trade. Yeah. Well, and and you transitioned very well. You go to Denver and you become an all star there too. So obviously right. the altitude didn't affect you negatively, but sadly, shortly thereafter, you blow out your Achilles. How long yeah. How long did it take you to, and obviously sports medicine was nowhere near uh, then where it is now, how long did it take for you to accept that you weren't going to be the same player you were, and, and how did you adapt to that? You almost never accept it. You know, in your mind, you think you can always come back. It was, it was a couple, three years after I, I had left the game that I finally said, you know what, it was time for you to go. Um you know, you always think that, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll rehab this, I'll get better. But I was never the same after that injury. So um, my game uh, obviously went downhill. My time as a player in terms of playing minutes went way down. I became a second-tier player. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it was hard to take. You know, I had a life of, you know, just playing this game that I love so much. Uh, from the time I was a little kid, now all of a sudden it's over. But, you know, um, fortunately for me, like I said, I I, I have, was brought up uh, with great parenting, uh, two parents um, that taught me a lot. And my post-life has almost been better for me than my, my playing life. It's been great. Well, I want to get into that, but just to put a button on your professional playing career, this does not often get a chance to happen, but your hometown team trades for you and you're right. able to finish your career back in Indianapolis, back with the Pacers, where it kind of all started for you as a professional right. athlete. And I, I just I just know how happy it must have made every fan that went to that game to be able to watch you one more time. No matter if you weren't the player you were, you were still right. big George McGinnis and and as you know, everybody when they look at you remembers that 
Washington state championship team. They right, remember right. your year in Indiana. They remember those ABA championships. So it must have been a nice kind of bittersweet thing to end your career where it started. Oh, oh absolutely. That was that was, that was the greatest thing is that I was able to end my career right here in Indiana. And I've always um, been uh, very well treated by the fans of the game here in Indiana. And I was treated well when I came back and and in post career, I was treated well as, as as well. So yeah, it was it was a real treat to be able to retire right here in Indiana. Now, George, we know in forty nine states, it's basketball. It's just a game. Right. It's so right. much more than that in the state of Indiana. And there's been so many great players come through Indiana in in the last century plus. But right. you're the one that won it all in high school. You went and played for the most storied college program in the state, and and then you brought championships to the state with the Pacers. I think there's really no argument to be made that any single basketball player in the history of the state of Indiana should be more uh, uh, embraced, celebrated, or identified as as the single best Indiana basketball player who played and represented the state at all three levels. Do you ever yeah. do? You, are you ever just driving in the car or sitting at home and just realizing, man, I'm the one guy in the whole history who got to do it at all three levels at the highest level and make my state so proud. Well, yeah, and then and. I think that the crowning factor was to be able to play at all three levels in this state and accomplish all that. So, you know, I knew that Oscar was, uh, he, he was a guy who set the tone, but he never played here. He played in Cincinnati and in college and in the pro level. Uh, but I, I was embraced from high school, college and pro right here in Indiana and uh, I, I, I still think to, to this day that um, uh, it's, it's one of the great blessings that I ever had. I see guys all the time who's 75, 80 years old, and they'll say, oh, I remember you in 69. I was sitting under this. I was sitting under the balcony in the state championship game. <laughs> that happened. So it's it's really great, man. It's been a real blessing. And your post-playing career, George, obviously you've been – kind of married with the Pacers for a long time as well. But just kind of what has been uh, the highlight for you in the almost 40 years since since wrapping up your playing career? Well, you know, I, I think family first. You know, I, I was married to my high school sweetheart, and unfortunately I lost her last year. She caught cancer. And um, so, uh, so uh, well, yeah, we were together for 42 years, and uh, that was uh, – that was so amazing. I knew her. We went to the same uh, elementary school together, same junior high, same high school. So just going through that whole experience, my family background, uh, the kids on my high school team, um, we get together about every other week and uh, right around the corner from Washington High School, a place that's been there for over 100 years called Working Man's Friend. And they've got great hamburgers. We meet and have hamburgers every two weeks. So oh, that's great. About five or the six of the guys on my high school team, we still get together. So that's always a lot of fun. Is is Steve Downing part of that group? Absolutely. Steve Downing, Wayne, Wayne Pack, Pack. Jim, Jim Arnold. 
and a, a few of the reserves, four starters. The other starter, Louis Day, who uh, unfortunately died here a few years ago. But yeah, just about about six, five or six guys will show up every other week. Now, uh, as an Indiana kid growing up in the 80s and 90s as a Pacers fan, I did not get to enjoy your glory days there. Uh, but for me, of course, uh, there was a pretty good player there named Reggie Miller. Can you talk about what he means to you and to that franchise? He, um, he, he, was, he was incredible. Um, you know, folks in Indiana love guys who can really shoot the basketball. <laughs> Rick, Rick Mount, the Damon Bailey. You know, you just go throughout the years. All these guys were great scorers. And uh, I remember the day Reggie was drafted. Um, you know, they were booing the Pacers because everyone here wanted the Pacers to draft Steve Alford, who was a great high school and college player here. And, uh, you know, Reggie, Reggie, you know, I think he felt like he had a lot to prove, but boy, did he win the, win the fans over. He, uh, he done more for uh the nba pacers than any other player that ever played here he was just tremendous he was a great guy he did a lot of stuff in the community he is beloved here and then you have slick leonard yelling boom baby every time well, he knocks one down you just had to feel like it was one big happy family as all right. that was going on right I, I told slick i says man you're the only guy i've ever known could make a life out of just boom baby you know <laughs> And George, besides the every couple weeks uh, hamburger uh, lunch or dinner that you get together for, what's keeping you busy these days? Well, um, I uh, I've had a company I've had for twenty eight years um, uh, that we do a lot of uh, work with uh, big manufacturers, Toyota, Cummings Engine, people like that, uh, in in different sectors of uh, manufacturing. Uh, that's been uh, been a lot of fun and interesting. So uh, I've done a done a lot of uh, stuff for the Pacers, the parents. Uh, I worked for the lottery here for a while. I was a spokesperson for about ten years. And I I did some Butler games, which was very rewarding. I I was able to even uh, broadcast about seven or eight state high school championship games. Wow, that's <laughs> uh, awesome. That was uh, that was the epitome of uh, of it all, and uh, you know because you see not only the side where the team wins, but you also see the side where the team loses, and you feel so bad for the kids. But yeah, I've had a I've had a really good life, man. I've been blessed. Now there's a another pretty good Indiana basketball uh, Hoosier, I should say Indiana University Hoosier basketball player. Uh, who's on the Pacers these days. Obviously, the, the season has been postponed. We'll see what's going to happen with that. But is there is there a connection with somebody like Victor Oladipo who, you know... Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, he suffered a pretty severe injury, and he was just coming around getting back to the old Victor right before uh, we had this little issue, uh, the coronavirus. But uh, he is an absolute great person. Uh, the fans love him. He's enthusiastic. He um, again, he's one of those guys who are always reaching out in the community to do something. 
So I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. And uh, he was, he was real. I loved him at Indiana University. And um, I think his first two or three teams that he played for in the NBA didn't appreciate what they had. And I think the Pacers saw something in him that other teams didn't see. And uh, it was almost unleashing that energy that, that he had when he got here. And he has been an absolute joy to watch uh, play. One question I got to ask you before we we let you we'll let you go here. When you did leave Indiana after your sophomore year, and they hired Coach Knight, there is right. some rumors out there that you left because Coach Knight came in and said there's going to be no stars on this team. Did you have any relationship with Coach Knight? Was that is that just urban legend? No, I never ever met him or talked to him. You know, he was only I was. Uh... I think I was 19, 20, I was 19. He was just a 29-year-old young guy that was at Army. No one had ever heard of him. Right. And, uh, no, we never had a conversation. And, uh, yeah, after I got done playing uh, with the Pacers, after they brought me back, uh, Steve Downing got us together. And we, we had a, an incredibly long, good relationship and he always refers to the fact that in 19, I think it was it 74 that they played UCLA in the semifinal 73, game. 73, 73 in the so final he, four, yeah. He says, boy, if we'd have had you here, I think we'd have won that, George. I says, you don't realize how, how I sit there. We were on the road playing in the NBA and uh, watching that game. Um, I was in the ABA actually watching that game and just thinking, boy, I wish I was on that team because mm-hmm. they gave UCLA all they wanted. And I became good friends with Coach Knight over the years. So that um, is, and, uh, That's beautiful. I mean, there is nothing. Yeah. You talk about how the fans in the state love good shooting. That is absolutely true. But the other thing we yeah. love is to know that Indiana basketball is a family. And that, that the people are connected, like you playing for Slick Leonard and you and Steve Downing still friends and some connection to Coach Knight and Victor. That right. that just kind of – it's what separates Indiana basketball from any other place in the world. Right. I get asked all the time when I was playing in the league, he says, what's, what's, so, what's so great about playing here in Indiana? I says, you know what? You wouldn't get it. You know, you're, 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 you're from Jersey or, you know – you're from this place or that place. I said, it's just something special about the game. You know, um, when I went into the Hall of Fame in 2017, I uh, got a lot of different things that I read about Indiana basketball. You know, we the the it was started in Massachusetts with a peach uh, uh, with a peach uh, uh, basket, but the first rim with nets. Come right here from Indiana, Crawfordsville, Indiana. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So we we played a big role in the, the the this whole explosion of this game of basketball. It was a we played a big role in it. So yeah, I I, I uh, and I think it's carried over. You know, 1954, a kid hit a shot. They said was heard around the world, and it inspired a sports movie called Hoosiers. Yep. I think is one of the great movies that's ever been made. Absolutely. Best sports movie ever. Yeah. And that's kind of started this crazy love of high school basketball and college basketball here in Indiana. 
you know, once you're an Indiana fan, you're always an Indiana fan. So whether I'm there or I'm looking at it on my couch, I'm always rooting for the Hoosiers. Well, George, you know that means so much to all Hoosiers to know you're you're there in spirit and and watching what's going on on the court. Uh, George, I cannot wait to uh, finish this with you and call my dad and tell him that I got to talk to the legend, Big George McGinnis. Uh, it has been an honor and a pleasure. We have heard stories about you since we were little kids, and you are as classy and as much of a gentleman as everybody says you were, and we just cannot thank you enough for what you've given the game of basketball, what you've given the state of Indiana. Uh, thank you much, guys. Just wow. Yeah, re-listening to it, um, again, I'm just like giddy that we got to talk to this legend and share his story. With our fans and with the uh, with Indiana basketball fans, and when I say Indiana basketball fans, I am saying Indiana as the uh, the big Indiana, the entire state, because obviously his fandom extends way beyond Hoosiers. So hope you enjoyed that. I, but peace, I George, I I will say, um, the magic of Indiana of Bloomington that you think somebody who went on to such incredible career success becoming one of the true all-time greats of the sport that that IU continue to hold such a special place in his heart and to your point in the intro of of coach Woodson getting him back down there and making sure you know he knows that he will forever be a Hoosier and and thought of as not just a great basketball player but with a lot of the the outpouring you see of people who knew him or just met him of just as every bit as big as his body was his heart and that warmth of which you spoke that that he spoke with you on the phone initially is clearly um, one of the great gifts he gave to the state to the city of Indianapolis and of course in his time in Bloomington just just a wonderful human being above and beyond a magical basketball player. Heart goes out to his family and his friends and the people that knew him best. He is an Indiana legend. Rest in peace, Big George McGinnis. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.